This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell every kind of story. Good ones, bad ones, sad ones, happy ones, stories about people, stories about towns. We did a, we did a story on the, uh, the, the city of Denver and how it came to be, the great train robbery, an event. And sometimes an ad tells a story, and some guy was trying to sell his Dodge Viper on Craigslist and posted a hilarious sales pitch that warns the reader of an impending doom should they choose to purchase, said Viper. Here's that ad read by our in-house talking computer, Ed. Okay. Full disclosure. I almost killed myself in it. It is very powerful. Extremely, extremely fast. I've driven Ferraris that don't feel as crazy as this thing. I am frankly afraid of it now. That's right. It's in my garage and I'm afraid to drive it because it's like a crazy steroid bull that wants to kill me. I've done 130 miles per hour on a Ducati while laughing into the face of death. The Viper is a completely different bowl of crack. The engine sounds like 40 pit bulls eating kittens while lifting weights. I cannot truly explain its power. It has whiplash acceleration in third gear at 50 miles per hour. That sentence doesn't even make sense. But it's true. That's why I'm telling you. I will not have your soul on my conscience. You need to know what you are getting into. What insane level of crazy you are buying. Can you resist the urge to mash down the accelerator? Can you? Because it's like owning your own demon. A demon that wants to kill you. We all know one person that for the right amount of money would kill you. But since no one is pain, they smile in your face and go about their day. It's like that except the viper doesn't bother to ever pretend it doesn't want to kill you. And it will do it for free. Some brilliant engineer designed a beautiful sexy bulging body, fantastic suspension, great handling, aerodynamics, and all-American style. While he was out on his lunch break, some demented maniac dropped 100 times more engine power than necessary into it and sent it out the door. It's mentally unbalanced. Look, if you are the type of person that can be talked into having one more drink at midnight when you have a very important presentation or interview early the next morning, then the Viper is not for you. The whole car is constantly whispering sweet lies to you. You got this. Open me up and ride free. You got this. Are you a wussy? <laughs> Just do it. Do it. You got this. Do not do it. You don't got it. You are a wussy. You will sit on the curb and settle your heart after it tries to kill you the first time. You will get back inside and it will immediately get back to the business of trying to get you to let it murder you. You got this. This time you know. That last time was just a fluke. You ain't no wussy, repeat after me. You don't got this. But for $30,000 you can look the devil in the eye and take this ride. You were warned. <laughs> well, thank you, Jesse, and thank you, Ed. And by the way, I love that computer read, Jesse. Saves us. We're going to automation here Absolutely. at Our American Stories. And from the sublime to the serious, our field correspondent, John Woods, serves in the Army National Guard, and he bumped across a troubling story from Major Paul Stubbs that was in the Marine Corps Times. And that's what we go from, Craigslist to the Marine Corps Times. And it was titled, quote, Blowing off orders has become a troubling norm. And Major Stubbs graciously recorded it for us. And you're about to hear just how troubled he feels about it. You can actually hear the despondency in his voice. 
Here he is. I think I'll grow a beard. It is increasingly apparent that more and more Marine Corps are just set aside because we're so busy answering higher-ups' mail and adding new requirements and systems to track and manage training and equipment. Not out of belligerence, just as a matter of course. It's non-malicious, selective disobedience. Don't believe me? Then why do we take weeks or months preparing for readiness inspections? If we'd been executing the orders, we would all just be in compliance with standards as a matter of course. Any day of the week would be a good day for an inspection. But we don't comply until it becomes an absolute necessity. Operations shut down and Marines are pulled to help the sections get back in compliance, like Badlands Corporals who live like pigs until Thursday afternoon inspections. Is that the new standard? As Marines, we keep our eye on the ball. Hire's intent. We get the items briefed at the commanding officer's weekly meeting done first. Units are 100% sexual assault, prevention, and readiness trained, but our vehicle record jackets haven't been updated in months and our weapons are dirty. But no one's asking about the vehicles or the weapons just now. And if our unit numbers are in red and the other units are in green, we look bad in front of the boss. The direction we're heading leaves us continually playing catch-up and clean-up as the requirements that actually get noticed change. This engenders a weapons turn-in mentality. We're busy, so only clean where they will look. The rest can rust. We have other things to do. I've had senior officers brush aside requirements because the unit was too busy. When they're confronted with the actual order to which that requirement pertained, they responded, but there's no demand signal to spend time on this. Really? As if a compressed schedule translated into automatic exception. But commanders set priorities, and if they add rocks for a pack and never take any out, well-meaning career professionals have to decide for them which orders they will ignore. The answer is the ones that aren't enforced. Why is there never a discussion about getting rid of requirements, just adding new ones? For example, why does a lieutenant colonel who has never used tobacco have to take the online tobacco cessation class every year? Is that something that could perhaps be only required for tobacco users? Does a Marine marry for 20 years with a crop of kids really need the class on preventing sexually transmitted diseases? Is he or she the target audience for this information? We preach top-down planning and bottom-up refinement, but we seem to skip that second part. We've chosen to stay on top of the things our higher commands put on their radar. The rest is set aside as something we pay attention to once every couple of years, when it again becomes important to leadership, command inspection scorecards. So, I think I'll grow a beard and see how long it takes someone to tell me I'm out of regulation. Then, if they're not of higher rank than me or able to reach into my chain of command, I will apply what seems to be our paradigm of ignoring it until there are actual consequences. Or maybe I should just keep shaving every day and we should do a sanity check on the cost and hours of compliance and match that up against what we want the unit to do for the actual primary mission. But we can't do both, and we aren't. And that's again from John Woods. And again, we love bringing you every kind of story. And we want to hear the real voices of the men and women who serve this country and the bureaucratic bureaucratic rules and norms they have to deal with and the political, the political ramifications of some of this stuff that gets thrown at them. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History series, brought to us, as always, by Hillsdale College. 
And on this day in history, an American legend was born, a legend whose brand you most definitely know and use. But you don't know him until now. These guys came to the door, they knocked on the door. My father didn't look to the people to see who it was. And they pushed the door open, and so he came running out. And I still remember this picture of my father was on his knees, and this man had a gun to his head, you know, telling him that, you know, if he doesn't give him the money, he's going to kill him. So, you know, they took my mother and my brother and I uh, and tied us up. And um, we were, like, really scared. I mean, this guy had a real gun, and he was, these, these guys were really going to, you know, hurt us. And my mother... <laughs> my mother's saying, you know, what you're doing here really isn't right. She said, you know, you really have to find another way to, to you know, to lead, lead a productive life. So this is not a good thing, holding up people. And, you know, and she gave him this whole lecture and everything. But to her, it was the principal thing. It wasn't right. She was going to express herself. She was going to tell this guy that it was the wrong thing that he was doing. And he had to think about something else to do for the rest of his life. This was not a good vocation he had picked out. And his mother would not be proud of him. Thankfully, the speaker's mother was proud of him, and so was his father. But he wasn't always there to express it. I lost my father when I was only 15. He was um, 44 at the time. Probably had more of an effect on me than I realized as a young man. The fact that he lost his father at an early age, it could have been a big minus, but it, it didn't work out that way. I made this decision that uh, if I didn't step in and try to earn a decent livelihood, the boys could never go to college. The young boy later said, so mother became the breadwinner, trying to, as she put it, be a mother and a father to two sons. Of course, there is no way that a mother can be a father to boys, anyway. How much his death affected her, nobody will ever really know for sure. But I think it was probably greater than any of us ever suspected. Not only because she had to go into his business and run it with no experience, but because it was really a small business then. If she had tried to sell it right after my father died, it wouldn't have been worth very much. His father's tireless labor launching their mail-order pharmaceutical company and his mother's labor building it up and leading the family alone were profound examples of perseverance for the young man. Stuttering was one of the things that made me feel very different. In college, uh, the difference was even, even more of an issue for me. When it was my turn to answer a question, Classmates would roll their eyes. Oh boy, here we go again. And um, what the weird part of it was is that when I had the answer and I was not called on, I would still raise my hand to give the answer. It's a little self-punishment, maybe it was defiance, maybe it was refusing to be throttled by a disorder. I think my father's death affected me in a lot of ways, he reflected later. Maybe at some level, deep down inside, I have always had a sense of urgency about getting things done, and accomplishing things, and moving on with things. Michelangelo sums this up well. He says, the greater danger for most of us is not that our aim is too high and we miss it, but that it's too low and we reach it. And his father's early death 
might also be why he places this special focus with his life. Don't focus on your resume, focus on your eulogy. As you build your career and your life, if you think about when you're gone, what, what is it you would want people to say about you that when you're not here? And if you live that way throughout your life, in your business, career, and personally, you're going to make a lot of good choices. Arthur Blank, co-founder of The Home Depot. We came from a very middle-class family, lived in a single-bedroom apartment. I didn't live in a home until I was 30, 31 years old. And remember, that home cost $31,000. And I remember telling my wife at that time is that I'll keep current the payments, but we'll never own the home. We'll never actually pay the debt off completely. So uh, times have changed. But, um, but I... But <laughs> Arthur Blank, the inside guy at the Home Depot. Arthur was the money guy. Who keeps the train running on the tracks, along with the outside guy. The cheerleader and the inspiration. Who sells their vision to the world. Without the outside guy, little may be sold. And without the inside guy, there may be little to sell. Here's the co-founder of the Orlando Magic, Pat Williams. Without Roy, uh, we probably wouldn't know much about Walt Disney today. It's kind of like Hewlett and Packard, right? You know, a, a business team. It's uh, probably like Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. It's like Rich DeVos and Jay Van Andel with Amway. Uh, it's like Frank Wells and Michael Eisner later at Disney. Those remarkable two-man teams that made things happen. The Home Depot had two outside guys. How many shot the other guy? <laughs> okay. Uh, those of you who don't shop the Home Depot, shop the, the other guy, and those of you who occasionally go there, I have a curse, and that curse is may your toilet run forever. <laughs> With enough personality. Elliot is a gift that never stops giving, as far as I'm concerned. And I can't say enough evil things about him. For 200... Let me give you the second message of unpopularity, because I have you here, and you can't go. If you go, if you go, it'll be very rude. If you get up and walk, I will make some asinine statement about it. And so by the time you get to the door, you'll be sorry you ever stood up. Ken Langone. I do give up names because my passion is so strong for those I like or I dislike that I, that I would miss a great chance not to take a shot. And Bernie Marcus. Take a hammer, a stupid hammer. You know how many times a Home Depot has been sued because people dropped the hammer on their toes? You wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't believe it. Idiot drops a thing on his toe and he sues us for it. My God. Together they all built one of the greatest companies ever. You know, when you look for a partnership, what you try to do is have two people that are opposites that give you a whole picture. And uh, Arthur is very meticulous. He's very fundamental in his thinking. He dots every I and crosses every T. If you were to take Arthur and say, who's the opposite of Arthur, it would have to be me. I think that Bernie and I, you know, um, for 
probably 35 years, um, we shared the same commode. Uh, and, uh, you know, that sounds kind of funny, but uh, saying it, but, you know, that really, we, we shared... We shared our lives. I mean, it was not only uh, it was not only the great success we uh, we went through uh, the, the 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 success we had at Handy Dan, the firing of, at Handy Dan in '78, uh, starting the company in '78, the Home Depot in '78 and '79. But we also went through all of the traumas in our own our own lives. The birth of our children. We went through some divorces. We went through you know some marriages. We went through. All of our life cycle events uh, we went through together, and I think that um, you know when I when I say that I love Bernie as uh, as my partner, I love him more as my brother. The Home Depot wouldn't be the business it is today if it weren't for their love for each other. And when we come back. More about Home Depot co-founder Arthur Blank. In his book with Bernie Marcus, called Built from Scratch, Arthur Blank wrote, quote, We're the oddest couple that has ever come down the pike. Forget Mutt and Jeff, or Oscar and Felix. Our physical and emotional differences are so obvious to everybody who knows us that it is a miracle that we survive 20 years together because we are such polar opposites. Personalities created the Home Depot, If it had been conceived of by any of a thousand other people, they could not have created what we did. Personality was our X factor, especially in the early days. Each of us was a strong-willed personality. Bernie Marcus and Ken Langone were the extroverted giant slayers. I was the reserved, less bombastic businessman who counterbalanced the excesses of the other two. We each possess a different combustible element that won't ignite without the others. More about the life of Arthur Blank after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and now back to the life story of Arthur Blank. And Arthur Blank wasn't finished. He had even more within himself than the Home Depot. One of his favorite expressions is, there is no finish line. And he really lives by that. And he's going to keep going and going, inventing new ways to go and new challenges. And I think that keeps you going, keeps you alive, keeps you vibrant, keeps your brain thinking constantly and uh, it's very healthy. One of Arthur Blank's next ventures came about because he sat on the other side of the table as a fan, as a disappointed fan of the Atlanta Falcons. I kind of said to myself that I could sit in the stands and complain for the next 30, 40, 50 years of my life, whatever number of years it would be, about the team or actually buy it and try to fix it. So uh, coming from the fix-up home improvement business, 
And given my nature, I thought I'd be better inclined to try to buy it and try to fix it on behalf of really Atlanta and our state and its fans. When I bought the team in, in uh, 2001, I didn't realize this at the time, but the closing, the commissioner said to me, you realize the, the Falcons never had back-to-back -back winning seasons. It was the franchise had been in Atlanta since 66, so it was 36 years old at the time. And I said, well, that can't, that can't be correct. And I should have known better. Paul was the brightest guy in the room all the time. And um, back and check and found out he was right. About 40% of the stadium was empty for all of our games, and of the 60% that were there, half the people were rooting for the visiting team, which was really not very good either. So what would Arthur do? He would do what he has always done. All of our businesses are focused on, on, um, on listening and responding to uh, fans, to guests, whatever it may be, and really subordinating whatever we feel to whatever our guests and fans are, 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 are telling us. When I bought the team, I went up to Flowery Branch, which is where the, which is where the not too far from where the Falcons are housed, and um, every associate in the building had an opinion about what we had to do to reach fans, et cetera, et cetera. And I, and I was very courteous, and I listened to the majority of them, et cetera, but I, I greatly discounted what they said I said, the problem is, is at that time, Atlanta, or Atlanta now is six and a half million, at that time it was about five, a little over five million. I said, there's almost five million people that are not coming to watch us play football. So I'm going to actually spend some time trying to listen to them, as opposed to everybody in this building. And so I spent, you know, six months in a variety of ways, talking to fans, polling folks, et cetera, et cetera, who were not coming to watch us play and finding out there was only really five or six issues that they wanted solved. And if I solved those five or six, you would get a good response. So we did that. We sold that every game since then. People would say to me, are you surprised the place is filled now? And I said, I'm not really sure why I would be surprised that it's if you have someone in the desert who's dying from thirst and you give them a bottle of water, they're going to drink it. So we found people wanted a bottle of water and we gave it to them. And Arthur Blank and his team are just beginning. Here's Vice President of Fan Experience, Mike Gomes, on the number one dislike of fans about attending NFL games. Nobody's going to charge $5 for a soda, $4 for water, $6 for a hot dog. We all know we're being gouged. So we decided to do what we call fan-first pricing, which will start to sell products in a, in a level that you've never seen really in a stadium. $2 for a hot dog, $2 for a soda that's refillable, $2 for chips, $3 for fries, $3 for a hot pretzel, $2 for popcorn. Something where you can actually now get a hot dog, fries, and a Coke and get that for your entire family of four for under $30. The lowest concession prices in all of professional sports. And the Falcons players, they also put fans first. I'm proud to say that um, your team, your athletes, have spent more time uh, in the community, and this is all logged and documented, et cetera, than any other team in the National Football League. More player appearances, more times in hospitals, more times in schools, more times in nursing homes, more times in a variety of settings. And they do that, uh, they do that on the one day off they have, which is on Tuesdays. These players haven't always treated their owner as well. I was on the field, and... and um, 
you know, this is it's kind of a dumb story. I mean, it's, it's a kind of embarrassing thing. When I've told the story, the commissioner he thought it was really funny, and I've told the other owners they think it was really funny, and our players kind of thought it was funny too. At the, and at the time, they didn't. But I saw two players started to have a fight, and it was right in front of me. And, you know, instinctively, it's kind of a father, if you will, if you walk into a room and two of your children are fighting, and i got six kids, so there's always a chance somebody's going to be fighting in our house, that, you know, what you try to do is separate them and whatever. So I saw these two young men start to fight in front of me. My first instinct was to break up the fight, which was, you know, really a dumb thing, not very bright. These are 300-pound men, fully clothed, you know, got all kinds of stuff on them, helmets, you know, pads of all measure and kind. And then I realized that this was not going to work out very well. I tried to get out of the way, got rolled over, it's on my rotator cuff. Two months later, had uh, had my shoulder operated on. So um, you, you do need to be careful about where you are in football. <laughs> Arthur Blank's greatest pride is that he was careful about his time in spite of operating at the highest level in American business. One of the greatest compliments that, you know, that I ever got is that when I retired in 2001, my oldest daughter was running a nonprofit organization in San Francisco. She couldn't make it back to Atlanta for the retirement dinner, and she did a videotape. During the videotape, she said, you know, Dad, I never realized till I got to university really how big the, the Home Depot was because frankly you were always there for me. You were always there at events, you are always there at important times in my life, etc, etc. And I would do, I would work very hard. I stopped playing golf for 17 years, I did a variety of things, but I would work around my kids' schedules. I'd get up early in the morning, I'd work late at night, I'd work all kind of weird hours to accommodate being there for them. So they never felt compromised by my success, if you will. That was a great compliment to me. So I would tell of our associates when I do reviews and what have you, and doing one later today with David Homrick sitting in the second row as a UGA graduate, um, is that, you know, start with a clean calendar every month. You know, start with a clean calendar, put on your time for your family, put on your time for yourself. Uh, there'll always be time for meetings. There's never enough time for enough meetings. So a couple of meetings will fall off, but time for your family and time for yourself will not. Arthur Blank, father, founder, friend to fans everywhere. I want to close our celebration by reading one more section of Arthur Blank's and Bernie Marcus's terrific book, Built from Scratch. Arthur writes, quote, My colleague Bruce Berg was asked to fly up to New York. He was surprised to find a limo waiting for him with me inside it. How would you like to be president of the Southeast Division, I asked. Yeah, Berg said. That'd be okay. Okay, I said. You're the president of the Southeast Division. The limo was quiet for a bit as Berg soaked things up. Hey, Art, he said. What does the president of the Southeast Division do? We'll talk about that later, I said. Later was two weeks. Quote, Bruce, let me put your new responsibilities this way, I explained. Think of your new job as being enclosed by an invisible fence and you're wearing a collar. And you are going to keep running around in the yard doing your thing... And at some point, you will go beyond the boundaries of what your job responsibility should be, and you will hit that fence. And when you do, you will get buzzed. Art, Berg asked, have you ever hit an invisible fence? No. Well, I have. It really hurts. 
Division presidents have a tremendous amount of autonomy. They should, with multi-billion dollar individual businesses under their management, they are effectively running the largest home improvement businesses around. We don't build straitjackets around our division presidents. That's by design. We want them to be flexible, entrepreneurial. We insist, we demand that our people take risks and take responsibility for those risks. Quote, it is your business, your division, your market, your aisle, your customers. It is not a Home Depot customer. It is your customer. We have a policy manual, and in it there is a chapter called Merchandising. When you open up to that chapter, there are no pages. That's our way of teaching people to think and think on their feet. Don't wait for some Home Depot bureaucrat to give you an answer or fix your problem. Like we tell our customers, do it yourself. And this is Our American Stories. our American stories and we talk about everything here and it's always storytelling and one of the most important people and persons that we ever encounter in our lives are our teachers and we all have that one or two or three boy do I wish it were more that's one of the tragedies in American education that we don't have more but boy there are some great ones and I know one myself personally he's still alive he's my dad he was an amazing teacher a teacher of the year in New Jersey, and a great coach. Coached a couple of state championship basketball teams, and he's still teaching me. And not one of those teachers' classes you didn't want to take, one everybody did want to take. And again, we all have them. And that teacher, you would have taken him for anything. You would have taken him for Greek history, even if he didn't care, because he's the kind of guy or gal that would just make it interesting. And also would try and tap the best in you and would challenge you. They weren't just there to entertain you. And they sort of understood you somehow, and who knows how they did that. It's just, I think, in the end, it's a gift. I don't know how it can be trained in the end. Great teaching. And some of us are lucky to get one, even, life-changing teacher. And let's talk about some of those. We're about to hear from a man who is blessed with not one but two life-changing teachers. Let's hear him talk about that first teacher. Well, the great mentor I was the headmaster of my school, George Van Sanford, Rhodes Scholar from Yale, uh, polymath, could do everything, was really a, a remarkable genius. And as headmaster, he instilled in me two things. One, uh, great belief in the life of the mind, uh, ideas, reading, uh, scholarly activity, discipline. They were enormously important. And two, uh, he believed in me, and he told me that he thought I could someday be one of the alumni of note of Hotchkiss. He was standing in front of a listing of all the great um, boys in those days who had gone to Hotchkiss, and uh, he told me he thought that uh, I would be on this list at some point. He believed in me, and by the way, the voice you're hearing, I didn't identify him for a reason, because I wanted you to hear him mention the person, the teacher, the instructor, the educator, Mr. Van Sanford. The person speaking, by the way, is Faye Vincent. And when he was a young boy, this man, Mr. Van Sanford, inspired him. Faye, by the way, if you don't know that name, well, he was the president of Columbia Pictures, turned that struggling company around and released classics like Tootsie and Kramer versus Kramer. And then he took another little job. 
and that was the commissioner of Major League Baseball. And so it turns out what Mr. Van Sanford did was, well, instill in this kid a belief in himself. And now let's hear Faye Vincent talk about that second great teacher that changed his life. Hoskins had a teacher of French literature who was uh, a spectacular man. And while French literature wasn't uh, vitally important in my life, the skills I learned from him, the attention, the detail, the beauty of the language, the the enormous thinking behind um, some of the thoughts. And those great teachers have an enormous effect on students. I never said thank you to them. I should have. I think he knew that I thought he was a great teacher. But I think one of the lessons of this is when you have a great teacher, 20 years later, I should have made a major effort to go back and say thank you to him. And, and that's a great regret. Indeed. And, and I know that my dad didn't need to hear that from the students. But when it did come, it was some of the some of the most blessed moments in his life. I mean, it really touched him. And my guy wasn't the, my dad wasn't the kind of guy to get all teary-eyed and the like, but it really did move him. So if you did have that great teacher, Faye Vincent is right. Give him a ring. They're still there. They're still teaching, more than likely, because the great ones don't want to quit. They're always talking about quitting. My dad always said, this is my last year. No, 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 this is my last year, and he just had to do one more year until he just couldn't do it anymore because it's really, it's hard work to teach. Good teachers work really hard, and they do not get paid enough. You can't pay them enough. Because of those two teachers of life and of literature, Faye has become as successful as he is generous, now a mentor himself to young men. But you don't have to have gone to a private school to find great teachers. See if you recognize this next voice celebrating her teacher. Um, for a while, I wanted to be a school teacher. In the fourth grade, Mrs. Duncan was my great, uh, greatest inspiration. Um, in the fourth grade is when I first began to believe in myself. I, for the first time, believed that I could do almost anything. I felt I was the queen bee. I felt I could um, control the world. And you're right. That's Oprah. And again, you're you're hearing the same words. And my dad told me all over and over again, get that young athlete, that young student to believe in themselves and tap their God-given potential because that's really your job. Don't tell them what they should be. Figure out what they can be. And again, that's Oprah. And, well, let's just say we all know what happened. Highest-rated talk show in history. Owns her own television network now. And she's a, a, a darn fine actress, too. And coming all the way from nothing in Mississippi, where we broadcast, by the way, in Oxford, Mississippi, a university town just south of Memphis. Just a decade before Oprah would be called the most powerful and influential woman in the world, she reached out for the first time after her schooling to the aforementioned Mrs. Duncan, that fourth grade teacher. And just listen to this unedited moment of them together. Oh, it's so good to see you. Oh, oh it's good to see you. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. Oh, I need some Kleenex. Well, it's good to see you. Bless your heart. Bless your heart. Oh well, I'm the one who is so honored. <laughs> do you remember? Do you remember? You know why I loved you so much? Because you, because you always let me lead devotion. Bless your heart. <laughs> <laughs> and we'd have graham crackers, and Mrs. Duncan would let me lead. I 
can't believe I'm crying like this. Yep. And there you have it. By the way, this is what made Oprah a star. I mean, a lot of people would make fun of that stuff. And shame on them. They're idiots. Um, this is what made Oprah a powerhouse, that raw emotion and the humanity of this lady. She didn't mind talking about her sexual abuse. Nobody did that then. And she didn't mind talking about things that really moved her. And you heard it there, that thing that impacted her most. You would think it's such a small thing, Mrs. Duncan's empowerment of her to lead devotions to their shared Savior at the time, which was Christ. One of the most telling things of that clip and it's so true of all such student-teacher relationships, is that neither one really knows just how meaningful, how life-altering these small things can be. Miss Duncan certainly had no idea how inspiring and encouraging she'd been. Well, did you know that for the longest time I wanted to be a fourth-grade teacher because of you? My, I was not aware of inspiring anyone at that time. I guess my mind was really on trying to work with the students and... Learn long division. Oh, yes, yes. And because of that inspiration from Mrs. Duncan, Oprah now sponsors nearly 400 impoverished girls each year in South Africa to have first-rate teachers, to have first-rate education at the Oprah Winfrey Leadership Academy for girls. And that leads us to another story and another individual who'd been moved by a teacher. We had done an hour on John Wooden and bumped across a man named Swen Nader who was a part of the 1972 and 1973 NCAA championship teams at UCLA and also was an NBA star. And Swen, when he was talking to us, talked about how he still remembered a teacher from the ninth grade that he still submits his work to. And just wait until you find out what subject. Poetry was taught to me first by uh, Rita Rockti. Uh, who was my ninth grade poetry journalism teacher at Jefferson Junior High School in Long Beach, California. She was a first year teaching. She was brought in and they made that course for her because she was so talented teacher they just wanted to get her into school. She's incredible. I still know her. I still go and visit her in Milwaukee whenever I can. And we have a relationship and she still grades my poetry, believe it or not. <laughs> She still grades his poetry. One of those poems Swen submitted for grading to Mrs. Rockty is called I Saw Love Once. Swen wrote it for his inestimable coach at UCLA and fellow lover of poetry, John Wooden, himself one of the master teachers, who thought of himself in just that regard, not a basketball coach, an educator. And just think about this for a second. Here you have Swen Nader, a grown man, writing a love poem to another man, John Wooden, because of the love he showed to him. How powerful. Let's take a listen. I saw love once. I saw love once. I saw it clear. It had no leash. It had no fear. It gave itself without a thought. No reservation had it bought. It seemed so free to demonstrate. It seemed obsessed to orchestrate a symphony designed to feed, composed to lift the one in need. Concern for other, others was its goal, no matter what would be the toll. It's strange just how much care it stores to recognize its neighbor's sores and doesn't rest until the day it's helped to take those sores away. Its joy retains and does not run until the blessing's job is done. I saw love once, t'was not pretend. 
He was my coach. He is my friend. And again, the power of a teacher to change a young person's life and change even an older person. We can all teach, but here we're honoring teachers. If you have any stories, share them with us. 844-627-8255. That's 844-627-8255. Tell us about a teacher who changed your life. Share those stories with us at Our American Stories, celebrating teachers, great people who do so much for so little in this great country. This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our Bring Small Businesses Back series, brought to us by the Job Creators Network. And today, we're talking to Heidi Gunal, founder and CEO of Camp Bow Wow, the largest pet care franchise center in North America. With about $90 million a year in business and more than 200 franchises in 40 states and Canada. Heidi, thanks for joining us. We, we interview a lot of job creators and we like to start always at the beginning. Tell us about your childhood, where you were from, what the area was like, and a bit about your parents. Sure. Well, I grew up in Southern California in Orange County, uh, back when Irvine, California was just getting off and started. And my dad was a police officer there, and my mom worked for the rec center there, just in administration. And uh, I have a brother who's seven years younger, and at age 13, they moved us to Monument, Colorado, a little itty-bitty town by the Air Force Academy with about 3,000 people. And I, I think I cried for about a year. I was pretty <laughs> upset about that move. Yep. But it ended up being a great thing. And what led to that move? What, was your, what did your dad do? What, I mean, obviously your dad was in law enforcement, but what precipitated that move? And then talk about your first, if you could, your first bout with somebody who either taught you something about this idea called business ownership or what your first experience was that led you to the idea that you might want to be in business for yourself. Well, the two actually tie together. My dad was always very entrepreneurial, and on the side, he'd be doing a lot of things. He always had like a sales job on the side or was promoting a product, and so he moved us to Colorado to take a job in advertising sales, and just they just wanted to get us out of Southern California. I think my dad saw the writing on the wall with what was going on as a police officer and thought it would be better for us to live in a smaller town and in a, in a more rural area. So we moved here, and my dad ended up doing advertising sales, but eventually started his own business and had a couple different businesses and, and really kind of lit the fire in me around entrepreneurship, I think. Well, that's great. And, and, and that happens sometimes and sometimes not. You know, we've learned from some that, you know, we heard, learned, learned from Mark Cuban that how he learned to get into business for himself is he wanted some money for sneakers and his dad threw him a case of garbage bags and said, sell these door to door. And, oh, my gosh, I didn't know that. That's and, fantastic. And that was it. And from then, he caught the bug. He thought, my goodness, I can make my own way. So this, uh, as a kid, we ask every single guest this because we do it for First Jobs Friday, which is a segment we do every Friday. What was your first job? 
What did you learn from it? And do you have your kids working as early as possible? Well, my first job was in Monument at working at the Dairy Queen, and I had to perfect the little twirl on the top of the cone. Oh, that's that was tough. <laughs> it was tough, and, it, and they were pretty critical about it. So I, I got taught to take constructive criticism. Yep. But actually, I learned a lot about responsibility and showing up on time and, and keeping to your word, doing what you said you were going to do. And, and I moved up pretty quickly because of that. And, and that was honestly a little bit of a preview into my future working at a franchise and understanding just how the general operation worked. I think I started that job when I was 15. And, um, you know, I, I really I really enjoyed it because a lot of my friends worked there, but I also learned a lot about being responsible and, and doing what you needed to do to earn a living. Yeah, we also point out uh, that Gwen Stefani had her first bout of labor at, and her first gig at a Dairy Queen. So you're, ah. in, you're, in, you're, in, you're in legendary company. I uh, like Heidi. that company. I'll take it. And by the way, I, for my money, the the, uh, the 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 hamburger at Dairy Queen is just fantastic, and the Dairy Queen milkshake is just a joy. And yeah. uh, so I just want to let you know, awesome. I'm a big time dairy. As you'll learn, we love every kind of what they call junk food in other places. We call joyful food uh, here on our American <laughs> stories. So I love that. Your, your I love that. Funny story from your first job. Worst, worst experience, best experience. What did you learn about customer interaction in that first job? <laughs> the, the thing I remember the most was when the big buses would pull in off the highway because we were right off I-25 and just... You know, 40 people would come barreling in, hungry and grumpy, and there would be three high school kids having to make all this food and serve them, and it was usually a disaster. We usually did not do a good job of handling those big crowds, but you really had to learn to just be humble and apologize a lot and do your best and, and see if you couldn't work through it. Yeah, and just push it out and get through it and wait for the next explosion to happen, I guess. Yes, absolutely, and I remember one of our favorite stories was uh, when the Greg Kin Band, do you remember them? Oh, sure. They came in, and they brought their whole, like, tour bus in, and we were so starstruck. I don't even think we moved for, like, 30 seconds. We just stood at the register like, what do we do now? <laughs> they don't write them like that anymore, Greg Kin oh, Band. Yeah, no, no, so, I don't so get so me good. on music trivia. I can, we'll go toe-to-toe for an hour, and we'll forget what we were talking about, Heidi. <laughs> So let me tell you, let me ask you this, the, uh, the education. We love to ask people where, you know, what they studied, or what connection it had to what they were doing, and where did you do most of your learning, uh, formal learning or the school, as we like to call, the school of hard knocks? Uh, I, I think I did a lot of the school of hard knocks, but I grew up in a family where my parents didn't go to college. They had us very young at 18 and 20, um, but they encouraged us um, to do all we could in the education space and go as far as we possibly could. They really recognized the value of education. So I went to SMU for my first year in Dallas on a scholarship and then was very homesick, so moved back to Colorado, graduated from CU Boulder, and then ended up getting my master's in healthcare administration from the University of Denver. But I'm always learning. I'm always taking classes and reading and listening to podcasts. And I just, I love to learn new ideas and listening to TED Talks. That's just kind of how I roll. Well, that's great. And, and that's the, I think everyone now knows that education is not static, that you've got to be a lifetime learner. And I think that what's about to happen in the education industry is explosive. And online learning is going to take us in directions and fix problems that we don't even know are fixable. Um, but well, that's a- I mean, 
it goes from my husband being able to, I mean, he's not the handiest guy. He's amazing at a lot of things, but he's the first to get on YouTube to solve any problem known to mankind and yep. teach himself that way. But then you read about, like, the Khan Academy that's teaching kids calculus that live in Mongolia that would never be exposed to that because they can get online and take a course. Yep. Hold that thought, Heidi, and when we come back, more from a small business owner, a job creator, an entrepreneur. That's what we do here on Our American Stories. And sometimes, yes, it includes the stories of those people who are out there creating jobs, those people trying to grow their businesses, grow their communities, and ultimately grow the economy. More with Heidi Ganahl after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're joined again by Heidi Ganahl, founder and CEO of Camp Bow Wow, the largest pet care franchise in North America, with more than 200 franchisees in 40 states and Canada. So you, you get out of college, and you settle in on pharmaceutical sales. How did that work out for you? Uh, well, I liked it. It was a great job, but I called it the golden handcuffs. It was really, it was kind of boring. You did a lot of sample delivery to the doctors and then a lot of catering of lunches, all to get 30 seconds in front of a doctor. So I learned to get my message across really quickly, but I, it didn't really fill up my soul. It wasn't what I loved doing, and I was married at the time to buy in my first husband, who was also very entrepreneurial, and we were always thinking up these business ideas. And we had two big fluffy dogs that we couldn't find a place that was good enough to take them. And about that same time, one of the first doggy daycares opened up next to my dad's business, and we fell in love with that concept, so we wrote a business plan for it. You know, I want to talk about your first husband. Just take a detour here. Um, tell us the story of, of, his, of his tragic uh, end of his life. Um, it, it had to be a terrible time for you, Heidi, but, but share that with the audience if you could. Yeah, Bayan was fantastic. He was such a great guy, and he was just one of those people that lit up a room and had such a great soul and, and spirit to him. Um, but we were together for about four years, married for a couple years, and for his 25th birthday, our family, um, my dad ran into an old family friend who was a United Airlines pilot, and he did air shows with an old 43 Stearman. He was super excited about it, invited my dad to come down to the airport for a ride, and suggested if any of us wanted to go, he'd take us as well. And my dad thought it would be a great um, thing for Brian to do, and we all agreed. We thought, oh, my gosh, he loves doing extreme skiing and all this, you know, very adventurous stuff. So we surprised him with the birthday gift to go up in the plane. And they did all the stunts and did a flyby over my folks. I, didn't, I wasn't there. I had another event going on, and the plane crashed into the ground, and both Cliff and Brian were killed instantly right in front of my folks. Oh, my goodness. And it was terrible. And so, I, you know, we have in our notes, Heidi, that for a while you were just, and I can't imagine how you wouldn't be, but you were lost. And, oh, and, so lost. So, yeah. yeah. And, and I was a mess. You were a mess. But there were these two dogs, <laughs> Mick and Winnie. That's right. They prodded you along. And talk about that and talk about next steps and you going into this next phase of your life. 
Well, the next few years were a mess, and I made some bad decisions with the settlement money I got from the plane crash. I remarried and quickly divorced, but I got a wonderful daughter out of it, Tori, who brought me back to life along with my pups. And about five years after the crash, my little brother comes to me, and I'm back in pharmaceutical sales. I'm a single mom now, and he's like, come on, you have so much spirit in you and, and drive. Let's get the old business plan from Camp Bow Wow and see if we can't get it going. And I was like, really? I'm going to waste, I had $80,000 left in, from the settlement out of a million dollars. And I was like, I, I don't know that that's the best idea <laughs> to waste that money on a doggy daycare. Right. He's like, I, I don't want to hear it. We're going to do it. And so we did. And it just took off. And talk about that first, you know, that first step, you know, because I think that people listening, you, you just shared something that almost every person thinking about going into business worries about. And that is that so many businesses fail. And my goodness, I heard a statistic about the restaurant business that was overwhelming, like 90 percent of them fail within five years. And I just go, oh, my goodness, that, that's terrifying. And yet, you know, where would we be without great restaurant entrepreneurs? And they, they do it and they survive. You started with a million dollars. You were down to 83000 and 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 yet you, would, you had to have learned enough from some of those mistakes to carry you through with your first Camp Bow Wow. Because that first one had to be the toughest, right, Heidi? It was. And, and I think the lesson I learned from everything I went through before I opened it was, you only live once and your life is very short and you have to make the most of it. And, you know, you you can't spend your life wondering what if. And so I took a big risk and I did it. But the difference was I was so passionate about this idea. I just knew it would work. And that's what I tell people. When you have an idea that you're not afraid of, that you don't feel a lot of fear, of course you're going to feel some fear about starting a business, then just roll with it and keep pushing on doors and seeing if they open and when they don't, move on to the next one. But if there's an idea that you're super passionate about and it just fills up your heart, then roll with it. You've got to at least try it. Yep. And this was your first space was 2,500 square feet in an old Veterans of Foreign Wars building. It had a drive-up <laughs> drop-off and a pickup for dogs, but you were the first pet care in, center in the country with a streaming video feed so people can watch their dogs. My goodness, I got to tell you, that makes, I mean, the, the, the little place, there's not a Camp Bow Wow in our little town, but the little place where we have our dogs, it makes my wife so comfortable to know she can watch our dogs. Yeah, that was my brother's brainchild. And, and the funny thing, video streaming back in 2000 yeah. was uh, it would take a picture every 60 seconds and post to the Internet. <laughs> right. and it would be this blur of fur, and you couldn't <laughs> see any of the dogs. But people loved it. And now it's hi-fi, video, high-definition streaming, 16 you know cameras in a camp. You can pull it up on your smartphone. It's very cool. So now you have the first successful Camp Bow Wow what leads you to this thing called franchising? And before we even talk about that, just so I can share with the, 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 the folks who are listening to our American stories, franchising is a legal concept and a business concept. And about one in five businesses in America are franchises. And that's everything from hotels to auto care specialties to maid services. You name it. Uh, the industry is 20% of the GDP. But what led you to this space, Heidi? Well, it wasn't intentional. Um, I, had, I had opened my second location, and one of my uh, customers worked for Mrs. Fields Cookies. And he was like, you know, Heidi, I've done a little bit of research, and there is nobody franchising a kennel or a dog daycare. Back then, doggy daycare wasn't anything like it is now. And I thought, ah, all right, I don't know anything about it. But we went to the International Franchise Association Conference 
I met some great people who agreed to mentor me. We went back to Colorado, put together the legal paperwork, put a sign up on each of the counters, and sold our first franchise within a couple weeks. Amazing. And, you know, it goes to something I think that's important. You, when you're analyzing your own skill sets, what you saw yourself at was more of that, more of that person with a vision, more of that person with the marketing skills. But if you would have not gone the franchise route and you would have tried to own and operate each place, you would have had to got, gotten into the muck and the mire of individual hires, operation and management of all kinds of employees. And people don't know this about a lot of corporate franchisors. They aren't the ones that, that own these businesses. It's the franchisees that own the decisions. They don't do the marketing, Heidi, but my goodness, they are responsible for the day-to-day business decisions, the hiring, the management. So in a way, this was actually the perfect business structure and legal formation for your particular talents. It absolutely was. I I tell people the franchise model was such a gift to me because I am so visionary and strategic and, and, you know, I don't enjoy as much being in the day-to-day operations and I didn't have a lot of capital to grow the brand. And I, but I had a lot of people that wanted to open one of these businesses. Once I got open, they would call me constantly. How do I do this? How do I get one of these places open? This is my dream. I want to hang out with dogs all day and make a living at it. So the beauty of it is you get to help so many other people do what they love and start their own business and make a living doing what you know makes them happy. I think it's what makes franchising so powerful in the end, Heidi. Not enough people can do the marketing but, and the branding, but what they can do is run the organization, and they have skin in the game because they're putting up the capital, and they, oh, want, to right. retu- they want to return on their investment, and you do too. And so it, it, it gets incentives lined up in really interesting places. I wanted to talk to you about the National Labor Relations Board, and that's yeah. called the NLRB. And they recently handed down what are being called joint employer rulings. Talk about what this means to a small business owner. And obviously, you're not the franchisee. You're the franchisor. But what does this mean to you, the franchisor? And what does it mean to all those individual owners of each Camp Bow Wow around this country? And there are 200 of them. Well, I'm extremely worried about my franchisees, but also the franchise industry in general. I mean, you go from having very... um, very open-ended operational expertise on the, on the franchisee side. So they get to run their businesses how they be, best see fit. And, you know, we provide a template for the brand and kind of guide the overall messaging and strategy. But the day-to-day is on the franchisee. And if all of a sudden you've got a franchisor that's liable for all the day-to-day operations of the franchisee and the employment hiring and firing decisions, That makes it extremely hard to have the franchise model work the way it does because the amount of royalties we collect are very, very small in the big picture. Not enough to hire a complete staff of HR folks to manage 3,500 people in the Camp Bow Wow system. Right. Whereas at corporate, we typically have, you know, 50 to 60 people on staff. Yep. And there you have it, folks. You're hearing it plain and simple. These businesses work on thin margins. And they can't afford the compliance costs and all the government regulations. Heidi, hold that thought when we come back more from a real-life job creator. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now we return to our conversation with Heidi Ganahl, founder and CEO of Camp Bow Wow. What is the NLRB up to, do you think, Heidi, doing this? Why are they doing it? I mean, I can see I'm a lawyer by training, and I can see that, well, my goodness, it's easier and more fun if you're a trial lawyer to sue the corporate parent than it is the the individual store for the negligence of an individual owner. It's spreading the risk up to what I call a deeper pocket. Uh, but what else do you think might be the reasons? Because I'm banging up in my head going, these are contracts. You have an actual existing contract between the franchisor and the franchisee, and the NLRB with this ruling would basically be rewriting that contract, Heidi. That's right. That's right. And you nailed it on the, the overall intent of it. So I think the trial lawyers are going to love this ruling. But the other thing that's going to happen is franchisors are not going to sell franchises, franchise units to the individual mom and pop folks out there. They're only going to work with the big, like the big operators that own like a hundred Arby's or a hundred, you know, McDonald's that can handle the capacity of legal work and financial background that's going on behind the scenes. And, and what I think is going on is I think that the unions are trying to get involved in the restaurant industry and unionize those units because that i mean most of the restaurants in the united states are franchises and that's the way they do it yep they get in that way and by the way who gets hurt the most in this heidi is this the franchising is the single greatest way for poor people minorities for for women to run their own and own their own businesses and now because of a ruling like this Goodbye. If you're a big guy, you can survive because you can deal with the compliance. You can deal with fighting off the trial lawyers. But if you're a little guy, no one's going to want to take the risk. The, the franchisor particularly is not going to take the risk. So Yeah, it breaks my heart. Yeah. I mean, it, I love small business and entrepreneurship, and I believe that's the key to keeping the American dream alive, keeping the economy going. And they're just, it, you're realigning the incentives. And there isn't an incentive for franchisors to sell individual franchises. And the individual folks that buy franchises that have these opportunities to do what they love and make a living at it, the risk is too great then, the expense is too high, and the regulation is too great to make it work. Yep. And tell us a bit about, before we go to our rapid fire, because we have some fun rapid fire questions for all of our guests, Heidi. And you're not allowed to think too much about them. You just sort of have to answer. Um, but I know she's going, uh-oh, you'll love it. But Job Creators Network, you're, you're, you're a part of this organization. Tell us what it means for you, why you've joined it, and what you're trying to do. Well, I'm trying to defend small business. And I just, it, it, like I said, it hurts my heart that there's such an attack going on on, on entrepreneurship and starting small business in America when uh, small businesses employ most people in this country, and it also gives most people the opportunity to start a business, uh, support their family, do what they love, and build wealth and a, and, and a legacy for their own family over time. And so I've got to put my hand up and, and say, I was blessed to live the American dream, and I was able to start a business doing something totally out of the box that I loved doing and make a living at it and help 200 other franchisees do the same thing. And it's being destroyed right now. So if I don't put my hand up and fight for it, who's going to? And I have four kids that I want to be able to have the same opportunities that I did. So I I just feel very passionate about fighting for that American dream. You know, and Heidi, one of the things we've been doing here in Our American Stories is, you know, the average American listening to this, and we do stories about everything, and we're going to be doing Frank Sinatra's life for an hour after we're done here. 
And uh, it's a beautiful story about a man who grows up in Hoboken, New Jersey, looks across that river and sees New York City as some far off place. And yet he ends up singing New York, New York and singing it in such an affirmative way that he says, you know, I'm not just that kid from Hoboken. I'm that kid from New York and I made it there and I can make it anywhere. And it's such an aspirational notion uh, what that song is comprised of. It's just spectacular and it's beautiful and it's everything that's great about America. We talk about Dodd-Frank and we've talked about it quite a bit. But how it impacts small bankers. We've been interviewing small bankers, many of whom, Heidi, will not give their last names and don't want to go on air because they're afraid of their regulators. And what they've told us again and again is the small community bank is getting killed. It can't afford the compliance costs. And because it's getting killed, the very people who are best at loaning money to small businesses, the very people who might get their first Camp Bow Wow franchise, are also being hurt. Talk about how access to credit has really been affected uh, by Dodd-Frank and on small business owners in particular, Heidi. Well, we've seen since uh, Dodd-Frank came into play, it's just incredibly difficult for our franchisees to get financing now. And before, it wasn't easy, but it was you know, a lot more feasible. And it's very, very discouraging because there are so many passionate people that just need a little help, a little push, financially and they can make it happen and build an incredible business off of one of our franchises and you know take care of a lot of doggies and a lot of employees create a lot of jobs and so it's it's so disheartening that the, they're trying so hard to protect people but people don't want to be protected they're willing to take risks in order to create jobs and to create uh, wealth for their family and if the good old government would get out of the way, we would have a lot more of that going on. Yeah, it's so true. Let's, uh, let's talk about some of the things we ask all of our guests. A teacher that stands out in your mind, Heidi. Oh, goodness. There were so many, but um, I think a professor at college, um, Professor Limberopoulos, he was a finance teacher, and I've never been a big numbers person. I mean, I can certainly read financial reports and, and get by, but he, he helped me kind of fall in love with the numbers and understand how important data analysis was to running a business or doing anything in life. And I think that's become a big part of who I am, which is counterintuitive to how I thought my marketing branding brain was going to work. But it's all about metrics now and data and making decisions around data. Tell us about a hobby or a passion or a quirk of Heidi Ganals that no one or no one would typically associate with you. Ah, that's a good one. Let's see. Um, uh, let's see. Gosh, that's hard. I grew up loving soccer and playing soccer, and that's how I got my scholarship to SMU was our family brought AYSO to Colorado, so the first soccer team when we were kids, and built it into a big program here. That's great. Mentor, uh, a particular mentor in your life who's meant the, the world to you. Well, I have to say, I've, I've gotten to know Carly Fiorina pretty well, and I worked on her campaign as the lead in Colorado, and she is just an incredible person and, and just inspired me to be able to do whatever I wanted to do, like my parents did a long time ago, but in a different context. I think she's fantastic. You know, Heidi, I saw her give a talk at a, at a private function. It wasn't, it wasn't a deep political talk. It was much more about family and marriage in particular. She was talking about the importance of marriage to a, a group of uh, mostly Christian folks, but people who are really concerned about marriage. And I was listening to her talk about being a secretary at, at, at HP and who came up beside her and who helped her. 
and how she remembered those people, and then all the people who were always rooting against her. And I was watching particularly the waiting staff. I, was watch- I always like watching you know, ordinary folks, not the, 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 the executives who are listening to her story, but ordinary folks, kids, you know, young people in their 20s, bartending and putting themselves through night school. And I'm, they were riveted. Heidi, riveted by her story. And they were African-Americans, they were Hispanic, and it was just beautiful watching her story inspire, truly inspire that staff. That's how she is. When you're around her, you feel inspired, and you feel like you've got so much potential inside, and she just wants to take a key and unlock it. And that's, I think, what her passion was about running for office and trying to kind of get back America back to that. Your favorite breed of dog? Ah, Labrador Retriever, who's sitting at my feet right now. <laughs> there you go. And cat, your favorite cat. I love Siamese cats. I grew up on That Darn Cat, that movie. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, yeah. Who, uh, who are easier to deal with as customers, cat people or dog people? <laughs> oh, Lordy, that's a tough one. I'm going to have to say cat people because they're a little bit more particular. Not that dog folks aren't, but when it comes to the specific care of their animals, I think. The Stones or the Beatles? The Beatles. There you go. And last but not least, Heidi, the worst date you ever had? Oh, my goodness. Um, probably it would have to go to a guy that I really liked, and we went out on a couple dates, and I found out he did not like dogs, and that was the oh, end Oh, that's it. the end. That's the end. <laughs> Oops. Uh, and it's good to not tell him ahead of time that you love dogs, too, because it's always good to find out the truth, because you know on dates... People will say anything to keep the date going. So that's Boy, good. that's the truth. <laughs> that's the truth. Well, Heidi, thanks so much for taking the time with us. Thanks for sharing your story and even some of these quirky things as well. It was great having you on the show, and we look forward to talking to you in the future. Thanks, Lee. Have a great day. You bet. Thank you, Heidi. And this is Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. If you're looking for news, oh, you got the wrong station. And if you're looking for hot talk or some screaming and yelling, wrong again. Uh, We do stories and only stories here. Stuff you can use, stuff you care about. The arts, entertainment, health, the law, and housing. The stuff that affects your lives and organized in that way. And we love to highlight the topics that left by the wayside when so much of our media treats politics as the first and only concern of most Americans. And again, one of the most important topics in our lives is housing. How accessible it is, how affordable it is, how stable it is. Today we're joined by Cassandra Bajak and Austin Berg to take a deeper and an all-too-personal look at how property taxes are pressuring Americans to leave their homes. I know this. I wrote a piece in the National Review about how my own dad, who had paid $32,000 for a home in 1961, could have never imagined that his property tax bill would be $15,000 for one year. And that was 40 years later. And Cassandra is a homeowner from a suburb of Chicago. Austin is from the Illinois Policy Institute, the state's premier think tank. Cassandra and Austin, thanks for being here. Thanks, Lee. Happy to. You bet. Let's start with you, Cassandra. Let's start with just your story. And uh, Austin, you'll come in uh, on the on the policy level in a bit, if you don't mind. You and your family, uh, Cassandra, live in Crystal Lake, Illinois, where the slogan is, a good place to live. Set the scene for us, if you could. Well, it is a great place to live. And when my husband and I decided to move here 
from Elgin 13 years ago, we did look for a better community, better schools, um, you know, good neighborhood and nice little downtown area. And we built our house 13 years ago. Unfortunately, we didn't expect our taxes to double. We knew there would be an increase because of the better amenities and, you know, local city and, you know, suburb schools and everything like that. We love that. But unfortunately, our taxes have doubled and are pretty prohibitive at this point. And your your husband was an Army vet. You have two kids. And you work in, of all things, the mortgage industry. But what you discovered is, well, at a certain point in time, from the day you became a homeowner to today, the property tax bill ultimately started to catch up with the mortgage bill. Talk about that. Well, it not only caught up, it exceeded it. And we're seeing that happen all over um, Cook County, McHenry County, Lake County, everywhere in the suburbs of Chicago, including the city. But um, usually the tax base, when we do new construction or, you know, evaluate taxes is about 2%. We're well above that. And Austin can give you the details on that. But we're at least double that factor since the values haven't really changed. The taxes have doubled and we're trying to figure out what's increased, what's gotten better for us. And it's status quo, basically, but it just hasn't, we haven't seen a phenomenal improvement or anything from what we came here from 13 years ago. You bet. And uh, Austin, you know, just uh, about my dad, he bought the house in 1961, and his uh, personal property taxes at the time were a little over $200. And that skyrocketed to almost 15000 and he had paid the house off decades before. And so here's a case where... The, the, the property taxes were many, many times fold over his highest mortgage payment. Where does this money go, Austin? What, what, what's happening with property taxes? Give us a, a, a look from the down, from top, down top and the policy level in Illinois. But this is New Jersey. This is a lot of states, isn't it, Austin? Yeah, that's the sad part about stories like Cassandra's is that they're increasingly becoming the norm uh, in Illinois. So Illinois is one of the highest property taxing states in the country, and we come in about number two or number three every year. And after Chicago phases in its record-setting property tax increase over the next couple of years, we're the odds-on favorite to take uh, the top spot. So what does that mean in practice? Well, the average property tax bill, take uh, McHenry County, where Cassandra lives, that comes out to $800 a month, average. So can you imagine just being you know, a real estate agent in a middle-class area trying to sell that tax liability no. to new people coming into your neighborhood? I mean, these are, these are good schools. They're, they're pretty good schools. Uh, but you could pay for a top-tier private school pretty much anywhere else in the country uh, with the type of money people are spending here on property taxes. Yep. So this is why you're seeing you know, record-breaking out-migration from Illinois over the past few years, because who would want to stick around and pay that bill? It's just fundamentally unfair. Yep. And Austin, do, do, do people ask the question now? I would think that they're getting increasingly wise. They must want to ask the question, where were taxes four years ago? Where are they now? Because then they can actually do a little graph. 800 today, maybe 1600 eight years from now. And by the way, when I retire and I've paid this thing off, wow, keep putting that line up. And maybe I've just paid off a home I can't afford anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're basically paying a mortgage you can never pay off and you're renting your home from the government and the government is not a very good landlord. So you see since, since 1990, you see uh, in Illinois, you see property tax revenues have gone up three and a half times the median household income. So people are just getting squeezed left and right, three and a half times the median household income. 
incomes have been stagnant, housing values have been stagnant or declined, and property taxes get higher and higher and higher every year. Amazing. Cassandra, uh, now we, we've heard your dilemma. What are you doing? I mean, what are you, are you considering a move? What, what are you going to do? Well, we, we really have to, unfortunately. Now, my children were born and raised in this house. We wanted to stay in Crystal Lake forever. You know, it's a good location for our jobs and everything like that. And uh, we've appealed several times and to really no good result as far as that's concerned. They ended up changing the factors on us where our property value now seems accurate, but the factors are, have gone up. So we're stuck between a rock and a hard place. So downsizing either here in Illinois to keep our children in school with their friends or moving out of state, which is a very um, possible option for us as well. We're, we're really in a crunch right now. Where we're trying to decide that for our family. Well, and it's interesting. And Austin, I'm wondering, you could weigh in here. One of the things we love to cover here on this show is where are people moving from and where are they moving to? And we just follow the annual Atlas Van Line Survey, which I think is the most fascinating policy uh, look at this space than anything almost any think tank could provide because, well, generally many folks not might not care about you know public policy the way we put it out at think tanks. But man, At- Atlas Van Lines doesn't have a dog in the fight. Um, they're just well, it's, it's just sort of, sort of an interesting tidbit. Talk about where people are moving from and to and why. Sure. So you can look at uh, moving company studies. You can look at IRS data. You can look at census data. All of those studies point to Illinois residents leaving for Texas, leaving for Florida, leaving for Arizona, leaving for Indiana, just lower tax states where you can get a lot more house for your money. And when you look at the survey data, the two number one reasons for, uh, for moving, long-distance moves, this is according to census data, is, I mean, this is common sense stuff, but it's economic reasons, so jobs, and number two is housing. So if you're in a state like Illinois where the jobs climate is among the worst in the nation, the taxes, uh, the property taxes are among the highest in the nation, wages are stagnant, why wouldn't you move uh, to a booming state where taxes are reasonable, you're not seeing out-of-control pension and health care costs for government workers, you're not seeing crazy workers' compensation costs that are hitting uh, cash-strapped local governments. Yep. Uh, you're not seeing these crazy prevailing wage requirements you see in Illinois. It's a no-brainer for a lot of families. You know, in Austin, what we're not considering, we did a, we did a, a segment on the Mercedes-Benz uh, uh, corporate offices in Montvale, New Jersey, moving to Sandy Springs, Georgia. And they said one of the big reasons was that the costs of housing were absorbed by them in payroll. So the businesses have to pay the cost if they want to keep their people put. And then they got to pass those costs along to somebody else. Talk about the impact of these higher taxes on, on businesses themselves, Austin. Yeah, absolutely. So I've been uh, doing a lot of work on manufacturing across the state. And when you talk to manufacturers, I just talked to one uh, in South Cook County, and he's moving his 500 jobs. It's, a, it's called Hoist Lift Truck. They make forklifts. They'll be moving their business, uh, which gives about 500 jobs, great, I think, average salary in the $60,000, $70,000 range, moving them just a matter of miles to Indiana. And when I was talking to their CEO, Marty Flaska, he was saying, I thought this would be a tough sell to my employees, but when I tell them what they're going to pay for housing versus what they're paying in Cook County, when I tell them what they're going to pay in, say, sales tax just for stuff, for, for diapers, for food, for anything, uh, for any type of service or good, uh, they're going to get it cheaper. Their quality of life is going to skyrocket. 
my bottom line uh, will be benefited by getting out of this tax structure. It, it's a win-win for everybody. Well, it is. And what I'd love to do is follow up with you, Cassandra. If you do move, I want to find out where you've moved to. I want to find out what your life's like. We want to do one of those WPA-like long-form stories where we follow people around from where they've moved from and to and let the American public know this is going on not just in your life, because I know so many people are feeling this. It's happening in Cassandra's life and guys like Austin Berg at the Illinois Policy Institute. Well, they're keeping track of it all. Thanks so much for both of you joining us today. Thanks, Thanks, You bet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, and these are the kind of stories I know you care about. And by the way, folks, if your property taxes aren't out of control, get to those school board meetings. Petition your state legislature. When they say it's only a 1% or a 2% increase, say no. Say no, because 2% every year times 20 years, and the next thing you know, your state's Illinois, too. This is Lee Habib. Again, this is Our American Stories. You can catch all of our material at ouramericannetwork.org.